Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, my guest is Stephen Taylor. Stephen is the founder and owner of StephensDrumshed.com, as well as the creator of the Drum Better Daily System. The website is membership-based and offers a way to learn the drums online in an organized and goal-oriented fashion since 2011. Stephen developed a course entitled The Art of Practice for Drummers in 2016. The main purpose of the course was to help create a focused and productive practice routine guaranteed to help you see results. Although we're going to be framing our discussion about being a better musician today, the principles we're going to learn and talk about will also help us to get better at doing and learning just about anything, whether it's creating art, cooking, trying a challenging exercise class, or just getting more comfortable with technology. Stephen, thank you so very much for being on the show today and sharing your time. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I, so I am too. I've been really anticipating this episode, so thank you. <laughs> so how about we start off just by letting the audience get to know you? Yeah. So, um, well, I was born and raised in South Mississippi, and uh, my, I, my dad was a pastor, and so I grew up watching him speak uh, publicly. Uh, which actually was great training for what I do now, <laughs> uh, teaching on video. Um, and coming up, uh, my, both my, my dad and my mom played the piano some. My mom was the worship leader. Uh, they both sang well. They had started music degrees, but never finished them. And so music was always kind of around. I would go to sleep on Saturday nights, listening to my mom practice for the next day. Uh, kind of, you know, she had a sweet way of playing the piano that was more stumbling than it was flowing, but she was trying to just sing through the songs. That was really kind of where my first love of music came from. And, um, yeah, I started playing drums when I was 14 and then got my first paying gig when I was 16 and gigged through high school and also had, you know, punk rock bands and all those things that high schoolers do. And, uh, and then, uh, at 19, I had started my music degree, jazz studies, at the University of Southern Mississippi, and then uh, I got a full-time house drummer gig on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. And so from 19 to 20, age 22, I think, I played down there uh, and learned a ton, just a ton uh, in real time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but there's, a, you know, there's a lot of habits and, and, and drugs and things that come along with, with some of that stuff. And I just, I, I came home one day and I told my wife, Kelly, we've been together since I was 16. Uh, and I told her, I said, I think I've learned what I can learn down there. And if, if I stay down there, I may, you know, be 55 with a crack habit. You know, we may mm-hmm. need to, we may, may need to get out of here and, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of move on. And so, um, so yeah, I went back and finished up, uh, college and then we moved here to, uh, Tennessee and then got into the gigging world here doing some, uh, some road stuff and was out with a big machine records artist named Daniel Peck for a uh, quick minute and, um, independent stuff. Uh, but it was real, um, not reliable for raising a family. And my whole thing has always been, uh, you know, if I get one thing, but lose all the others, then I don't think I'm doing very well, you know, mm. it's, it's still a loss. So, uh, I, I knew a lot of guys whose families were just a wreck because they were just gone all the time on the road. So, um, I came home after a gig and told her, I said, I think I need to get a nine to five and figure this out. So I became a personal trainer for about six years. And while I was doing that, I joined a band. We got signed by Universal Records. Um, so that plan totally did not work to get out of music. <laughs> like, I just want to join a band just for fun. We'll play some cool shows on the weekend. And then the shows got cooler and cooler. And then, you know, we're being flown to New York with, with a record label, which was great, you know. Um, yeah, that's not, wor- not working with a record label. That was horrible. But the whole experience <laughs> was everything my 14-year-old self, you know, wanted it to be. And, um, and yeah, so then I started doing some video teaching on YouTube. You can still see those first videos. They're, they're pretty rough. <laughs> um, just to kind of see, I started a blog, um, and started kind of getting my foot back into how I could get back in the music business, but say who I worked with, how I worked, where I worked, how much I got paid, that kind of a thing and not have to be on the road full time, uh, which leads us to where I am now in 2000. I started this business in 2011, which is 
as you reference, I've got the art of practice, uh, which is a chorus. I've actually made it for general musicians as well now. And then I have a membership site for drummers and sell different courses and things like that. But I did all of that so that I could have a more balanced work home life. You know, I, my dad traveled and I just didn't want to be gone from my, from my family and kids that much. So, sure, sure. so, uh, so now it's, you know, it, I teach and I always said I would never be a teacher and here I am. <laughs> I'm a I told him, I said, I don't want to teach middle school or high school band. I don't want to see a bunch of kids that don't want to be there. They're just trying to get out of high school, you know? Um, and I'm not knocking that profession at all. I have mad respect for those, uh, teachers. Um, they're doing a huge service for the arts, but it just wasn't me. Sure. Um, so in all irony, I'm now a teacher <laughs> and spend all of my time trying to figure out how I can teach better and, and get them to learn better. So, but you're teaching adults who really are wanting to come to the instrument. Yeah. Adults and some kids, actually a lot of late bloomers, uh, a ton of, uh, of, of over 50. Um, either never always wanted to play and they're now, you know, finally being able to, or they're coming back to it after having to stop for work and life and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, that's a, that's a, that's a huge component of, of my members is, is that. So that's spectacular. I love it. Love it. I'm a late bloomer, so I love it. <laughs> um. <laughs> So in your experience, after years of teaching, what problem were you looking to solve when you uh, developed the Art of Practice course? Yeah, so um, the Art of Practice kind of came about by an accident. You know, when we go to learn an instrument or a sport or anything like that, we're tasked with, let's take basketball, I'll use this example several times when I'm talking. We're tasked with learning how to play basketball, right? And that's a whole thing in itself. It's a game and you got this ball and you have these rules and there's this court. And then there's also these guys walking around telling you what you can and can't do. And there's these other players. And how do we manage that to get there? You have to go through this thing called practice. And that's what makes you a better basketball player. That's what makes you. But nobody ever tells us there's no real playbook for. OK, so this practice thing, that's a whole separate event. Actually, mm -hmm. we need to learn mm -hmm. how to do that well. And if you learn how to do that well, then that's just, that's just learning well. If you can learn well, then you can apply that to anything. So what I was seeing was there was, there was a huge disconnect with me not being able to be in the room with them and walk them through the exercises, kind of showing them this is how we're working through it. This is how we're, uh, which is what my teachers did for me and what any good teacher would do. Um, and not all of them, of them do that. You know, some of them don't know, uh, how to practice, but there's just been huge, leaps in our understanding of the brain in the past 20 years and how it works. And, um, and then with the advent of technology with, you know, smartphones and smart devices and, uh, email and social media, that really compounded the issue to a point where they just hit a bottleneck and that I, my students weren't seeing progress. But the main thing was I was getting these emails daily of, I don't know what I'm supposed to be working on. Mm. Uh, I don't feel like I'm making any progress. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, whenever I start digging into it, they're working on one thing one day, another thing the next day, and then they see this cool video and they're going to learn that. And then they're going to, you know, they're jumping all over the place with no clear defined goal. And so I started going, well, actually, this isn't a, this isn't a problem with drumming. This is a problem with practice. And so that's when I started studying about it. And I've studied on practice now way longer than I like to admit. <laughs> it's kind of one of my, one of my second passions. Um, is learning how the brain works so that we can work it better, you know, and that improves every area of your life. So I, um, started diving into that and then I thought, Hey, I could probably make a little, you know, course or something out of this, teach on it. I had taught some things and people had seen good results. And then I said, well, you know what? Before I put this out, maybe I'll do just like a, I'm going to do a survey and see what their questions are. And maybe I'll include some of those. Well, the questions came back and I was not addressing anything that they wanted addressed. Huh. And there were a couple of a few key components that were coming up over and over and over that I thought, oh, wow. So it really wasn't a thing of me learning new stuff for it. I needed to situate the, the stuff differently so that I really address those pain points more. Um, focus was a huge one mm -hmm. that, um, again, social media, all of the distractions we have with our daily life. Studies are now showing that we're losing the ability for deep work because of the way that we work on the surface all the time in these open office working plans and ha constantly having access to social media and 
all the notifications on the phone and your email, being your email all the time, all those things. Focus was the number one. The second being, I don't know what I'm supposed to be working on. Mm-hmm. And, and then the third kind of nose diving into, I don't know when to move on. I don't know if I'm seeing progress. I don't know how much is too much to work on. It was all these kind of uh, secondary problems that I can, could combine into one uh, that were just, they weren't seeing any progress. It's so funny you talk about social media being one of those main distractors because not only is it easy to check all those notifications constantly, but I've also found, especially in my personal experience, it can be very intimidating when you pull up a YouTube video with a drummer, whether they're extremely experienced or not, and they just play this crazy lick or this crazy six, seven seconds, or my favorite, the five-year-old who's yeah. just tearing up the drums. And that's and all that five-year-old has had to do that week is practice that song. Like that's their whole and, life, you know, and that's a, you know, it's a, it's a great point. And I think one of the reasons that I have had such success with teaching this, uh, and, and having other people kind of learn the concepts that I'm mining out from different books and studies is I remember before, and this makes me sound like some old guy. I'm like that old guy that's like, you know, shouldn't be on, you know, Instagram, Facebook. Like, and I'm really not. I'm, I built my whole business on social media, but if I didn't have a business on social media, I wouldn't have any business to be on social media. So I wouldn't, I would be a ghost. I would, I would not be on there. I, I, I wouldn't get a cell phone for years. And I finally got one because I was missing some work. I was missing calls for, for gigs. And so I finally got one. And I remember the first time text messaging came on my phone. I was practicing and, uh, Kelly, that's my wife. I, I had gotten a text message from her, but I was just sitting down to practice and I was used to blocking off. This is my three hours. I'm, I'm practicing like, you know, nobody bothers me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I saw it come through and I thought, okay, well, I'll check that afterwards, you know? And, uh, so I got to practice. I forgot the text had come through. I mean, I was, it was, I had had texting like a week, you know, it was not something I desired to check. And, uh, so when I got done practicing, uh, I looked at it and I had like eight or nine missed, you know, messages. And then I had three or four missed calls and, you know, they're delaying be like, are you okay? What's, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, what's happening? You know, so I called her and I said, is everything okay? And she said, yeah, yeah. What were you doing? I said, well, I was practicing. I told you I was going to, you know, practice. And she said, well, I didn't know if something had happened. I said, oh, okay. Well, what's the emergency? Was something wrong? She said, I just want to know what you want to do for dinner tonight. And I thought, I remember putting down the phone and going, this is going to be a big problem. It's become a real problem with us always being on a shallow level and really losing the ability to go deep with work. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm considered that weird old guy. I've disabled all notifications on my phone. I don't get text message notifications. I don't get social media notifications. I don't check email on my phone. If you need me on my phone, you can call me. And if I know the number, I'll pick up. If not, you can leave a voice message and then I'll decide on when I'm going to get back to you. Um, I check, I check text messages like I would check email, uh, whenever I have set aside a time that I'll go and I'll respond to them all. And the great thing is, is after a few days of doing this, people stop texting me, you know? And, uh, and it's not that I don't want to hear from them. I do. I want quality interaction with them, but I don't want the latest meme or, uh, sure. and so I've, I've really started to set up some pretty serious guy, uh, guardrails within my working life and personal life to keep all of that from infringing. And so that when I get to my practice time or whatever I may be working on, maybe, maybe it's not practice time. Maybe it's family. Maybe I'm having dinner with my family or maybe I'm watching a movie with Kelly. They've done studies that show that if you have a couple sitting at the table and there's a phone on a different table with no one sitting there lying face down, they reported that there was less intimacy between the two at another table. We, we have serious, uh, rules about devices and things in, in our home and in our relationships and that kind of stuff. All right. What is deliberate practice? Mm, mm, the question of all questions. <laughs> so deliberate practice is uh, just slightly different than regular practice. Um, and, and it's really, um, it's so slight that some people don't get the difference, but it's purposeful and it's systematic. And so, uh, whenever, uh, the, the, the study that really kind of popularized all this, uh, well, there was a, there was a book, uh, out, was it Outliers that, th- that this was in? I think it was Outliers. 
but there was a study by K. Anders Ericsson, and you can download it for free online if you really just want to dive into a 38-page, you know, just mind-numbing study on practice and focus. Mm. But in there, that's where the 10,000-hour rule comes from. That's where deliberate practice comes from, all of those things. Um, but the thing that people miss when they say, oh, it's 10,000 hours of practice, it's, it's 10,000 cumulative hours of deliberate practice, and that's really just a roundabout number. Uh, Josh Waitzkin has a great book called The Art of Learning, Searching for Bobby Fischer. The movie was uh, was about him. He was a world champion chess player, I think, by the age of 12. And then uh, he got tired of that and went on to be a world champion in Tai Chi push hands, which is a mm-hmm. fighting portion of Tai Chi. Uh, and now he's a world champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And it's like, how many, how's this guy becoming such a world? Is he just great at everything? But it's really hard to look at it and go... Well, he's a chess player. So, but then this, and then it's a martial arts. So these are the two opposite. One, you're sitting at a table thinking. The other one, you, you're beating somebody up. Mm-hmm. There's two opposite ends of the spectrum. How did he world champion in both of them? That's, you know, the question. It's really all about how he goes about learning. Another one that's really good is called Practice Perfect. And then Deep Work is a great one by Cal Newport. Uh, the 80-20 principle is another good one that you can refer to. Uh, those are just good resources to kind of go through and begin learning about it. Essentialism is another one. Uh, but deliberate practice is, it's systematic and it's purposeful. Uh, so it's, it's gotta have a goal. You have to have feedback within there. You have to have a plan that maps to that goal. And then you have to actually be engaged during the whole learning time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an autopilot thing. It is very much a, uh, you're tired when you get done with it. You're tired mentally. Um, and, and sometimes tired physically, you know, if you're learning a sport, uh, one basketball player goes in and he says, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to shoot baskets for an hour. He goes and retrieves his own ball. Uh, there's no real feedback. He's just, he's putting in the time, what a lot of people would do with practice. So he's there an hour. Once the hour's up, he's put his hour in. All right, I'm out of here. Player B comes in and he says, okay, I'm not leaving till I've got 200 shots made. Okay. So there's our goal. And then he brings somebody with him and he says, Hey, I'm going to have you stand by the goalpost or, or stand by the, uh, the, the hoop. And when I shoot, you're throwing me the ball back. So there's no wasted time. Systematic. He's immediately getting that ball back. Whereas the other guy's running after the ball, getting it. Uh, this guy's just got a system that's going back and forth. And then every 10 shot, they stop and they assess. And the guy that's standing there is making notes. Did he make it? Did he miss it? If he missed it, was he too far to the left? Was he too far to the right? Did it fall short? So every 10 shots, he's stopping and going, okay, how are we doing? Well, you made six of those. You missed four. Two of them were too far to the right. One was short. One was to the left. So I would start. So you make minor adjustments to that as you're going. Mm-hmm. Then once he hits that 200 shots made, his practice time is up. He hits that in 45 minutes. Great. If he hits that in two hours, well, then it took two hours. So that's that's kind of the difference between what those two look like. And when you're engaged in them, you can see how player B, there's a lot more involved. The planning phase is a lot more. It's very goal oriented. It's very systematic. And the results are very tangible. So you leave with this feeling of nailed it. You don't just kind of clock in hours. Mm-hmm. That recalls something that I'm doing right now, a little experiment. And I saw this on a show making pizza. It was phenomenal. And he said, you know what I did? I practiced making this over, over, and over. And he said, and when I was practicing making this, I was only focused on making this pizza for months. Twice a week for the foreseeable future. I'm thinking about three months right now. I've got a willing guinea pig, my husband. So I've got the (laughs) feedback loop there. (laughs) It's really about making it and then taking notes. What's working? What's the right temperature? What's the right percentage of the flour that I'm using? Cause I'm mixing two types of flour. And how long do I preheat the oven at? What temperature do I preheat the oven? And how long do I leave the baking stone in there? So I'm dabbling with all of those and, and taking notes as I'm going along the way so that I can get to this place where I feel very comfortable from the beginning to the end. When I start making the dough getting the dough and figuring out how to get it to that point where it's relaxed enough, where I can roll it out. The other day, I noticed that it was way too stiff and I was trying to force it. And so I walked away for 10 minutes, came back, and then it was in that relaxed state. So if 
this deliberate practice, these ideas you're talking about really can be applied to getting good at whatever you decide you want to be good at. There's a great book. It's called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And it's a business book, actually. And it analyzes businesses that were very neck and neck in the market. And then all of a sudden, one of them just shot up like 20, 30, 40 times average market uh, is how they were performing. So it dives into why the heck did that happen? What, you know, was it leadership? Was it this? And there's several things that happen uh, throughout the course that happened. Obviously, good leadership. They had to have a level five type leader and all these things. But the major finding was consistency towards a set goal over a long period of time. They got the right people on the bus in the right place. And then they had just a goal. I'm going to be the best in the world at X. Once they figured that out, they did the work every day and they knew that every iteration they would get better. And it's kind of, you know, they liken it to turning that flywheel. The, the first one's really hard, but as you get it turning, it starts and all of a sudden you start getting this thing that's turning itself. The momentum starts happening. And the, the big differentiating factor they found between just the good companies, some of who don't even exist anymore, and those great companies was the, the great ones had that consistent day in, day out, steady focus on this is our goal. This is what we're going for. Let's just iterate until we get there. It's the same process. It's really not any different than, you know, mm-hmm. than making pizza or learning the drums or, you know, learning to play basketball or whatever that may be. And a big turning point for me has been in anything I'm doing. I want to slot off the time and give it, you know, whatever that may be doing. If I'm doing my email, I check email twice a week. Um, I've, it's taken me years to get to that point, but I check it on Tuesday mornings and I check it on Friday mornings. Wow. And I, check, mm-hmm, and I check it before work so that it doesn't interfere with my actual work. Um, and so I'll get up at five in the morning. Nobody needs you at five in the morning. If you think they do, just call them and wake them up. They'll tell you they don't. <laughs> and so, and so from about five to seven, I do email because email is like full contact for me. You know, I'm like recording messages. I'm shooting videos. I'm like, I'm in it. And then I'm done with email and it's no longer a distraction and there's no, oh, should I check my email? No, there's nothing there for me until Friday. It's Tuesday. And so if the team needs to communicate with me, we do so on work boards and things like that. We keep it out of email. We don't text each other. We don't, cause I want to respect their, they're great at what they do. I don't want to be in their business when they're trying to, you know, edit a video or mix something. And because I want whatever I'm working on, I want that to be the most important thing in the world right now. If I'm watching a movie with my wife, I want that to be, that's the most important thing in the world right then. You know, me being able to plug in. And get in the moment with her and watch that movie, whether it's a horrible movie, watch a horrible one. It's just so bad. But like I was in it. I was like, let's do it. You know, this is, this is the worst movie ever. We're going to see it through the end. And it was hilarious because I knew when it ended, it ended. It was not resolved. And she hates movies that don't end resolved. And I knew that was the payoff for me. Like we and then she I, she was so angry. She just walked out and stormed out. And I thought that was perfect just to get that reaction. I knew it was coming, you know. So when I sit down to practice the drums. You know, nothing else in the world needs to happen right now. If you go into it with that mindset, cooking pizza, like this is, this is the most important thing. Whatever you're practicing, whether that be yoga or working out or basketball or learning to knit or Legos, you know, my kids love Legos or video games, whatever it is, that's the most important thing and plugging in and really exhausting yourself through that effort of, of trying to get better until you're sick of making pizza. You're like, I don't want to see the stupid pizza anymore, (laughs) you know, and then you sleep and you come back and you're like, I think I could make it better. You know? Yeah. It's yeah, that moment. That's, that's that, exactly that. Yeah. Exactly the goal. And you've got to be able to embrace failure too. Oh, I didn't like this this time. What can I do to figure that out and make it better? You're absolutely right. Okay. All right. Let's dive into specifics then. So you talked about what deliberate practice is. So what are the components, the factors that contribute to deliberate practice? Sure. So you have to have it be goal oriented and then it has to be systematic. Um, those are really the things. And, and they're kind of two separate things. And when I teach the art of practice, it's really a five phase. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, practicing anything is, is a, a five step type of a deal. Because that systematic thing is no good if you don't have the focus. So there's a whole thing we got to do to know how to focus and to know when we are focused and when we're not focused. Because you, you really need to be keyed into that. And if you're not focused, a lot of times it's better to put it down and say, I'll come back to this. Mm. Uh, 
And so whenever I teach about practice, there's the, uh, there's the planning stage. So that would be the step one. And that's really where you're going to be getting your goals together. It's like, okay, let me just, let me lay it all on the table. I suggest taking a piece of paper and just everything that is a problem that you see with whatever it is you're doing. Just put it on there. And it's even better if you can put, uh, I was just doing this with some stuff, get a stack of computer paper and every problem gets its own sheet. Every problem, you, you wind up with this big stack of paper, but then you have to pick that paper up and you have to look at that one problem and be like, what am I going to do with this guy? You mm-hmm. know, where's he go? So it's really this time where you're sitting down and sometimes this takes hours the first time. When Kelly and I first got our first budget together when we got married, um, we, it took me forever. I hated it. I was like, this is budgeting. This is lame. But now, you know, it's something we do once a month and it takes half an hour, 45 minutes and we're done and it helps us get our goals, right? But that first step, the planning phase is really a tough one. So I suggest to people just to uh, grab a cup of coffee and sit down at a table by yourself and really think through the problems, the issues, not don't go, okay, what material am I going to use? That's not that's not the first problem we're addressing. Mm-hmm. First problem we're addressing is in the next six to 12 months, what are the two to three things that you want to be better at at X? And for mm-hmm. me, that comes from music. Mm-hmm. And once I know those two to three things, those are my destinations. And once I have my destination cities, if you want to, if you want a kind of analogy, um, there's a million ways I can get to Las Vegas from here. I'm in Nashville, right? But unless I know I want to go to Las Vegas, I'll never get there, you know? So I have to decide what's the trip I'm taking first. And then once I know where my destination is, then I can figure out, okay, what road am I going to take to get there? And that's kind of the next phase where we go, okay, these are my big problems. What am I going to do to address, you know, go back to that sheet of paper like this guy that's staring me in the problem. Number one, what am I going to do to address him? Sometimes that's a DVD. Sometimes that's a, a book. Sometimes that's a video series. Sometimes that's a teacher. Um, it can look like all different things, mm-hmm. but you get that material and then you line that material up and a teacher helps with that in whatever you're doing, a coach. And then I'm a big proponent of getting a teacher. You will just make leaps and bounds faster, whatever you're doing, cooking, whatever it is, get somebody that's done it before. And then you start breaking that big goal and that material up into smaller goals. So what's my six month goal? What's my three month goal? What's my one month goal? What's my two week goal? What's my one week goal? And if we look at, okay, I want to learn X thing. I've got this book. I want to learn it in 12 months. This book is 50 pages long. Now we go, we work backwards from that. In six months, I need to be done with 25 pages. In three months, I need to be done with 12 and a half pages. In one month, I need to be done with about four pages. In two weeks, I need to be done with two pages. So that means that as this year goes, I need to work about one page a week. And that'll give me a couple weeks at the end if I need to fudge a little bit, right? So that's how we, it's very systematic, very simple. Zig Ziglar was great. He's got a great, uh, he's, he's, uh, deceased now, but, uh, he was great at motivation and goal setting. Mm-hmm. Really one of the first motivational speakers that talked about goal setting. What am I trying to learn? How am I going to get there? And then once we have that, then we can go on to, uh, what would be our pre-practice ritual. And that's the part where it's a set thing that I'm going through and I'm trying to get myself in the focus mindset of, before I get there, calming myself, getting that centered. And for me, that looks like I listen to what's called a trigger song. So it's a song that I've listened to a ton and it kind of triggers that creativity. Same way a song might trigger you to get angry mm. because you were in a situation where that song made you angry for a long sure. time. Something like that. Same mm. way a song may trigger you to have sentimental feelings towards your spouse because that's our song. And then um, I spend five to 10 minutes. It just depends on how long the practice session is going to be where I spend some, you know, call it mindfulness, you can call it prayer, whatever you would like to, but it's really just you getting centered, visualizing, you know, what does a successful practice session look like? So I'm listening to that song. I'm, you know, I'm visualizing a a successful session. So by the time I go into my warm up, I'm very, very focused and very calm. And I kind of have put myself in that state. Uh, Fighters do this all the time. They can go from sleeping on a bench to ready to fight in about three seconds. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them do it from a, from a song. So that's kind of the first two steps for me before you ever get to practicing whatever you're practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have, you know, warm up, which is really instrumental to me to ingrain that success before, before your practice time warms your muscles up, warms your mind up. It's something you can do successful. You do it the same way every time. 
Some people call that boredom. I call that focus. And what you're doing early on is ingraining success into that practice session. So it's like, okay, I got one win under my belt. I played my warm up. Perfect. Well, you should, because you should know it 100%. It's not time for learning new stuff. So once you have that warm up perfect, then it's like on to the next thing. So you're already ingraining success in that practice session by getting an early win, you know, even if it's something you've played a million times. And then there's the work time. The work time is like the bulk of your practice session. So it's where you're really diving into the program that you have, whatever that might be. You know, for you with pizza, that would be the time where you're like putting it together. You're, you know, you're, you've done all the prep. Now it's the time to like put it together, really bake it. Like that's that work time. Um, and then there's the, the, um, what I would call a, a cool down session. And what I really heard you saying about the pre-practice, the warm up and all that is in, in getting ready. The planning is really setting up a ritual, creating habits, mm-hmm. right? I'm real big about, about habits and about eliminating decisions, you know, uh, so our prefrontal cortex is where our focus comes from. It's where our goal management comes from. It's where our executive mm-hmm. functions come from. Mm-hmm. There is something called de- decision fatigue, and we only have a finite amount sure. of focus every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if I can go into a session knowing step one, two, three, and four is going to get me to my practice time focused with having to make zero decisions, that's an early win for me. Uh, but I'm a little weird in that way. I eat the same thing for breakfast every morning. I eat the same thing for lunch every morning. I wear the same shirt to work every day. Um, like I have several things that I do the same. Because I don't have to decide, you know, what I'm wearing for work today is this shirt and like four or five different pairs of pants that are the option I have for work. And that sounds dull to some people, but to me, it's, it reserves all of that energy for other things instead of me sitting there for 10 minutes and going, well, what are we going to wear today in the room by myself that no one's going to see me? They've done studies where they've looked at um, measuring the blood glucose level uh, based on being having to make a difficult decision versus an easy decision. The one I'm thinking of is subjects picking chocolate chip cookies versus radishes. And they found that the people who picked the radishes had lower blood glucose levels because they expended physical energy to use willpower not to take the cookie. So that makes a lot of sense. The more you can streamline things and, and make them things that you don't have to think about, the more reserve you have for that focus on a subject, deep work that you need to do on something. It really is, you know, and and a simple decision like what do you want for breakfast? So many things like, well, how many calories am I going to eat later today? How much sugar does this have in it? You know, is this going to hold me over until lunch? Is this like all of those, you know, there's a lot more that goes in that decision. And you know, I know how I can tweak my, I did it this morning. I took out the tablespoon of peanut butter that goes in it. And I know that taking out that tablespoon of peanut butter takes out X number of sugars and eight grams of fat. And, you know, cause we're going to the beach in three weeks and that's an easy way for me to slim some, um, setting up systems for email, setting up systems for social media, for interaction with mobile devices, when I'm going to text people, how I'm going to text them. I mean, it makes me sound like a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> makes you sound like a really well this guy he's a he's a blast to be around you have come um, you are in good company i am a <laughs> fellow proud nerd so anything that can make us better i'm happy to do it so what are some things that take away you call them practice killers in yeah. the program so what are things that take away from being able to perform deliberate practice yeah so a lot of a lot of people don't realize that quoting a friend of mine he's president of the school of the arts in Philadelphia he and i actually bored a table to death they actually all left that night cuz he knew what myelin was in the brain and i was like wait a minute and he he looked at me and said you know what myelin is i said bro you want to talk about it? And, we, and off we were to the races. Our endorsers from Zildjian and Tama were there, and they're just like looking at us like we got three heads, you know. <laughs> All right, guys, we're out of here. To, to quote him, to get greater focus, we don't have to become better at focusing. We have to become better at ignoring. Uh, and that takes effort to ignore external inputs into what we're doing, to ignore that lizard brain that when, you're, when your phone buzzes, you automatically do that. Just watch a kid if you want to see how the brain works. 
As soon or as grown, that phone or a grown buzzes, person, or a grown person, as soon as that <laughs> phone buzzes, my kids run in there, and it's like mm-hmm. I'm like it's not important. They're like, well, it buzzed. It must be important. I'm like, it's, it's really not. And so I suggest to people to keep a, an actual calendar and then assess how mm. that session went and did you mm. show up on time. The first place we can start is, are you showing up on time? Mm-hmm. And if you're not showing up on time, why? Mm-hmm. That, maybe that's because you played on you know, Instagram for 10 minutes longer than you said you were. Maybe that's because you had an argument with someone. Maybe that's because you took this route to you know wherever you're going to be working or practicing and it took longer. Whatever that is, maybe it's you walk a certain way in the house that passes by your dog and your dog wants to go out every time you pass by that. You know what I'm saying? Those natural things can begin, can become triggers for the dog. Oh, he walks this way every day. I need to go out. So that becomes part of his ritual. So it's, you know, practice killers can be, for me, they can be anything, but really they're, what is it that's taking away from my practice time or keeping me from that focused practice time? So those are more physical ones. The setup of your room can be a practice killer. Maybe the lighting's bad. Maybe it sounds, if you're a musician, maybe it sounds acoustically bad in that room. So Mm -hmm. I would start going, how can I make the room sound better? Furniture, by the way, if you're a musician, bring in furniture and deaden the room a little bit. That'll make it sound better. Mm -hmm. And once we're distracted, once we've become distracted, even if you say, I'm I'm not going to respond to any email, I'm just going to look at it. So you look at it and you see an email from your boss and they need something, but you're not going to give it to them now, but you go to sit down to practice. And when you sit down to practice, what are you thinking about in the back? You're thinking about it. You're composing the email in your Mm -hmm. head. You Mm -hmm. might as well stop and go do the email. Mm -hmm. And so we have all of these things where we have uh, decision fatigue. We have residual effects of changing from topic to topic. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes 10 to 15 minutes to really plug into something new, uh, no matter what that is. And so all of those things can be practice killers when we're in our practice time, even just checking social media. So I don't just have rules for the actual practice time. I have rules for my break time, too. What am I going to be doing on break? Because there are actual things that help you regain cognitive functions. They help you recover cognitive functions. To have focused practice, the study that they did, the role of deliberate practice in the acquisition of expert performance, uh, the one I referred to earlier, Their big finding from that was the amount of deliberate practice that an expert in any field, it's not dependent upon the number of available hours they had to practice. So just because they had eight hours to practice, that does not mean they engaged in eight hours of practice. What drove how much they practice was how long it took them to recover from their last deliberate practice session. So So we need breaks. Oh, huge. The, mm-hmm. the old saying, you know, what you do in the gym is only 10% of it. The other 90% is outside of the gym. Mm-hmm. 1%. It's, it, that goes with everything. Uh, our brain is this fantastic thing. Uh, and if we'll allow it to work how it was made to work, mm-hmm. when we go to sleep, all of a sudden, boom, it kicks in. And it's resting, but it's also making sense. It's carving new neural pathways. It's mm-hmm. trying to figure out. What in the world was that person trying to do today? And when you wake up in the morning, that's why when you wake up, you open your eyes and you go, I got it. Mm -hmm. Or you show back up and the next day, I don't know what it is, but 10 times better than I was yesterday. But it's not just rest. It's what they found was whenever they engaged in deliberate practice, they would engage in two times as much recreational activities mm-hmm. and up to three to four times as much sleep mm-hmm. as they did practice. On the weekends, that flipped a little bit. They would get a little less sleep, more recreational activities. Mm-hmm. But those were both still recuperating periods. Uh, there's a few different ways we can recuperate. Sleep is a big one. Uh, recreational activities. This can be going and playing a pickup game of basketball with your friends. This can be going to a movie with uh, your significant other. This can be walking the dog. This Absolutely. Can be, this can be going and playing Frisbee, playing with my kids. You know, I can just sit down and just fully engage in, you know, flying my daughter all around the room or whatever we may be doing. Um, it gives you liberty to enjoy that. So I don't feel guilt anymore. The other way that you recuperate is, uh, you know, very tangible food and water. Could you do us the favor of outlining the specific steps of what a pre-practice ritual looks like? Sure. So if you wanted to 
have that time before your warm-up time. And remember, this isn't a long time. This is just three to five minutes. A lot of people think, well, it's going to take me eight hours to practice. It's really a very short, systematic thing. Uh, and so the components that I like to include in mine are some type of trigger song. Even if you're not a musician, I would suggest this. Um, and I like to have some type of uh, organized sequence that I do things in. So I put this cup here and then I do this thing and then I do this thing. If you talk, mm -hmm. uh, uh, oh, who's the writer? Um, uh, he's got a great book. I believe it's called On Writing. Um, Stephen King. And that's what Stephen King says. He's like, I don't know why the cup has to be here when I do it. And I don't know why the pen has to be here. And I don't know why I have to do this thing. That is my ritual. And that's what happens. And so really, it's about making that ritual. So I would just have a set of triggers and a ritual for uh, you may be I listen to this song while I eat this particular snack and drink this particular beverage. I listen to this song while I close my eyes and breathe deeply and envision a successful practice routine. Uh, I listen to this song while I do these five stretches. Um, it, it can be very I suggest for it to be very simple. But I also I, suggest spending a lot of time thinking about each one of those steps. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll interject there because I do have a very specific thing that I learned. And this was because I had an accident. So I was enjoying myself learning to dive a little bit more deeply into cooking with a friend uh, who's a chef. And we were going to make a dish. It needed breading. So he comes over that morning. We're setting everything up. Then he looks at me and he goes, okay. It's time to put the breading on. Where is it? And I looked at him and I go, oh, my God. And so he looked at me and said, Nadine, this is why we do mise en place. So mise en place is a French term that means putting things in place. So that has become one of my rituals. And I find that it's very calming. You have everything because before what I used to do is run back and forth. So the ritual has become prepping. It's, and, and that's, it's a great example because I worked in the restaurant industry. It was one of my first jobs was as a dishwasher. And then I moved up on the line as a cook. And then I got to work in another restaurant with chefs. And so, uh, you spend a lot of the day prepping for your ship. And it, and it's that idea of everything in its place, you know, so that you can go into that work time, that battle time, that mm -hmm. game time, whatever that is. And then getting rid of distractions too. I find that. Other things, like for instance, I've got two dogs. So before I decide I'm going to get focused into either practicing my drums or making a meal or whatever, I've got to make sure, have they been walked recently? Do they need anything? Do they need the meal? Because there's nothing more irritating than I'm, I'm starting to dive into something and here comes the dog. I found that that's also very important. And you mentioned it actually in one of your videos where you said, and I thought this was fascinating, you'll even pick a path in your house so you don't see things that are going to distract you? Yeah, I don't <laughs> want to see the dirty laundry. So I don't want to think about that. And I'll pick things to do on my break that are not distracting and won't take away from, you know, I love my kids to death and I want to see them, but not when I'm not going to be able to fully engage with them. Mm -hmm. Not whenever I'm going to be like, oh, come back later. That's not a good experience for either of us. Mm -hmm. If I would have had better planning, that engagement would have never happened. They won't mm -hmm. grow up remembering, oh, don't mess with dad. He's practicing. You know, they would grow up going, oh, no, that's dad's time to practice. And we'll, you know, one hour we get to hang out with him. So it's all about noticing each one of those things. A lot of people think it's, you know, it's going to happen overnight. For me, it's just like, oh, this new thing came up. Wow. So that was not good for my practice time. How can I avoid that next time? How can we make a better experience for me and for everyone else involved? And it really makes for better relationships. I've talked to spouses that get along much better after this because they talk about things. No, I really do want to spend time with you, but I also want to do this. And so uh, I touched on it earlier, but when you take a break from whatever it is you're doing, especially if you find yourself frustrated or what I always recommend people to put down the sticks, try to get your focus back. And if you can continue practicing, but if I'm in a two hour practice session, I need a break about every 30, 45 minutes. I need to take five, 10 minutes. And there are things that have been proven to help you regain cognitive functions. So help you get that focus back for longer sessions. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big ones uh, or the biggest one is physical activity, walking, stretching, you know, whatever that physical activity may be, it just helps reset your cognitive functions. That's why you feel so fresh after a workout. The other thing that helps you regain 
cognitive functions is uh, nature. So they've done studies of people that walk in suburban mm-hmm. environments and those that walk in nature. The, the, the focus is not nearly regained in a cityscape as it is in, in, a, in a landscape type of a setting. Green space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even looking at pictures of landscapes and green spaces helps. And so um, I will go outside, especially we're about to have fall in Tennessee and it's awesome. And so I'll be going outside and walking, whether I need a break from work or whatever, that physical activity combined with nature outside. Um, and then the third thing that is kind of a fun one for me is uh, reading fiction. I will sometimes read fiction on my breaks. And it's really a nice break. You know, I get to read this engrossing story for 10 minutes. The timer goes off and I'm like, wow, that was inspiring. You know, I'm going to go. How does it benefit us to be very deliberate and focused about whatever we're learning, whatever we're practicing in other aspects of our life? So all too often we segment our lives you know, this is my music. This is my, you know, for you, this is my pizza cooking time. This is my, you know, time with my spouse. This is my time with my kids. And what I found is the better I get at focusing on one activity, the better I get at focusing, period. And it's not that we can't focus anymore. It's just we have exhausted limits per this one application. It's like unplugging and going to another application, you know. And so for me, understanding how to have a deeper focus and knowing, being able to tell, like, I'm not really here. I'm not really present. It, it translates to family time and me understanding I'm at the dinner table, but I'm not really here. I never really left work before I came here. You understand what that frame of mind feels like mm-hmm. and you want to go back there and you want that in all areas of your life. Uh, the, the book Deep Work talks a lot about that, um, that we're just we don't go through life so scattered. But it also for me, the big payoff is you start having discussions with people. If you have a, you know, I have young kids. So if you have a three-year-old and every time you go and close the door to go practice, you hear this little knock or they come in and they want your attention or whatever that may be. Well, that's a great opportunity for you to shun them and shoo them out of the room and say, you know, dad, dad's busy. I got to, you know, it's also a great opportunity for you to have quality engagement with them. So it's a great opportunity for me to go, but they're really not trying to bug me. They're three and they just want to hang out. So let's give them a quick win. Hey, if you'll let dad do this for this amount of time, when this timer goes off, you and me are going to go outside. And we're going to jump on the trampoline. We're going to throw the ball. Or we're going to take the dog out, whatever that reward may be. And you'll find 99.9% of the time they're like, you got it. And they'll watch that timer. And as soon as it goes off, that's when you just have to be good about following up on your end of the bargain and actually doing that. The same thing with Kelly, um, my wife, whenever, you know, there used to be a discussion of, you know, oh, you like drums as much as you like me, like that whole early relationship thing. And it really was, you know, one day I stopped and I said, she said, you love it more than I said. I said, no, I don't love it more, but I do love it as much in a different way. I said, there's no way I can love you like I love music and there's no way I can love music like I love my wife. It's, mm. you know, it's ridiculous to think about that, but they're very equal loves in my mm. life. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't do away with my wife so I could have music. I would quickly do away with music so I could have my wife. There is that differentiating feature. For me, it, it, it opened up a discussion for us to really talk and go, hey, this is important to me. You know, the, I mentioned earlier, I went out to a jazz jam last night. She knows that's important. She knows nothing about music. It just is. She's just not musical, which is great. <laughs> um, because I think if she was musical, I would never unplug from music. It kind of gives everybody permission to have other interests besides each other, which can mm-hmm. be, um, makes you kind of address that thing instead of build up resentment and not talk about it and then wind up in therapy. You know, you got to talk with a counselor and there's a third party in there and you got to explain half your life to them before they can get to the point of like what we're arguing. You know what I'm saying? Like, not that I have anything against that. It's just like, let's skip some of that. Let's just talk. My final question for every guest is what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? Balance is healthy. You know, if I get to the end of my life and I live to be a hundred years old, but I never went on a water slide. We went to a water park this last weekend because I was scared that that might shorten my life or I've never had a great glass of wine. If I go through my life and I live to be a hundred, but the quality of life is not there, 
well, I'd rather shorten it a little bit and have some quality. And, and so for me, balance, I really didn't understand. Well, the music industry changed as well coming in, uh, when I was coming into it, going to digital and everything. Uh, but I just didn't understand how much time you had to spend on the road. And I did understand how much time my dad spent traveling. Um, and I didn't like it. And then I started hanging out with guys and they had played these awesome venues, but you know, their kids didn't know them or, you know, the rate of divorce in general is not great, but amongst musicians, tour musicians was just dismal. I mean, it was, it was, uh, depressing for me to look at it and go, well, what good is life in this career if I don't take any of them with me? So for me, it's just balancing time with family, but also time doing what I love, but also eating healthy, but also not eating healthy, not sure. taking too many risks, but also sometimes going outside and playing in a hurricane just because, you know, maybe I want to say I did that. Well, I thank you so very much for so many nuggets of wisdom you shared with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a real, real pleasure. And now it's time for practical tips. Pick something that you want to get better at doing. Keep it simple and start by establishing a ritual. The ritual starts by picking a trigger. Remember, that can be a routine, which is a sequence of events that remain the same every time. You can pick a song like Steven does, or you can pick a particular space and make yourself comfortable in that space. Next, do some breath work. And finally, practice visualization, picturing yourself accomplishing your goals successfully. Stick to your ritual for the next month and take notes. How often do you practice your goal? Put it in a calendar and make notes about what works and what doesn't. Thanks for being here. See you next time. 